The Minding Your Mind podcast, raising awareness and breaking the stigma around mental health. Everyone loves a good story, and everyone loves a good story that they can relate to. I've always cared about the person. I've always cared about their story. I've always cared about the adversities they've faced and how they've tried to or are in the process of trying to overcome them. Hello and welcome to the Minding Your Mind podcast. My name is Jordan Burnham, and I will be your host for today's episode. For this episode, I interviewed ESPN Emmy-winning director and producer Martin Kotobashian. Martin will share his experience of interviewing some of the biggest names in professional sports, uh, the different techniques he uses to bring light to impactful messages through the art of storytelling, and how his understanding of mental health evolved through listening to the people he interviewed. I've known Martin for 10 years now, because 10 years ago, I received a phone call from an ESPN producer who wanted to have a short phone call about possibly interviewing me and my family on my story for a show called E60. That short phone call turned into two hours. That interview ended up being a piece titled Unbreakable, and that piece was nominated for an Emmy thanks in large part to the man you'll be hearing from next. Here's my interview with director and producer Martin Kodabashian. Okay, with us today, we have Martin Kodobashian. Martin has 19 years of television experience with ESPN and is a 14-time National Sports Emmy award-winning senior producer and filmmaker. He's an expert on not only producing and directing, but more than anything, he loves talking about the creative process of storytelling. With us today, Martin, how are you? Jordan, when I see you, The smile that I sometimes have gets 10 times bigger. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the Minding Your Mind podcast. I um, I was really excited to set this up with you and just hear your perspective on so many different aspects. First, within that bio, you know, I just said ESPN, and it's an incredible achievement to make it to ESPN. But I was wondering, what is that process like from the time you graduate college so you actually get to ESPN. How long did that take? It's a great question and a question I get asked frequently from young people who are trying to get into the business. And the answer is the process began while in college and not because I was majoring in communications and minoring in English and had a dream of being broadcasting. But I actually began with an internship while in college and was giving 25 hours a week plus a full load of school. Uh, to a local station, a local TV station, where I was learning how to edit, learning how to write for television, learning how to sit and listen to police scanners, going out with reporters in the field, um, eventually working into the sports department and being a sports producer and going to games and, you know, getting the deer out of the headlights, uh, you know, out of, out of my system early when you're in front of a big name athlete, uh, our heroes, and want to ask some questions and you're not stammering because you're like, Oh my goodness, it's Jerry Rice. Oh my goodness, it's Michael Jordan. All the greats. So, you know, that process started in college and after uh, a couple of internships and an independent study, which is another fancy word for internship, and gaining that experience while in school, some real time, real world experience of 
I mean, you're literally working at a news station. Um, that news station hired me right out of school as a production assistant. Five years of kind of continuing where I left off with some of the things that I was learning as an intern. Um, I became a production assistant and an associate producer and then a producer at that local TV station. And that was in 1997 through about 2000. And that's when I got the itch. I was like, there's one place I want to work. I know I want to work there, uh, ESPN. And I'm going to put together a resume tape that I'm going to edit myself uh, and put together myself and just send it to them. And uh, it got into the hands of a former uh, news director who had Life is about connections too, right, Jordan? Like people you know, right? Right. It's talent. It's opportunity. Uh, it's it's parents and sacrifices that they make for us to put us in good positions and help us with tuition and all that. Whatever they can do, it's always a team effort, always. And in speaking to the people at the local news station, they said, "Hey, you should send your tape to uh, Mr. Al Jaffe, who was the news director at the CBS uh, local station 13 years before I even got there. So he doesn't know who I am, but you know." Hey, here's an alumni trying to get an ESPN. He took a tape, put in the hands of someone else, put in the hands of someone else. And with God's blessing, someone looked at it and said, hey, we want to interview you for a position. So it all begins with three you know, plus years, plus you know, a few months, four or five months of internships, uh, a lot of hard work to get even into an, was a slightly above entry level position at ESPN as an associate producer. And... I was the first one to be hired at that level in November of 2001 um, from out of house, out of house as in not homegrown from ESPN as a production assistant and then associate producer and those levels hired. First person to be hired from out of house in five years. There's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of persistence. There's a lot of hard work, a lot of hours to put those that tape together to even send ESPN that people don't see in the box score. And I think with anything that you want to achieve and dream to do, Sure, they always say it's you know it's who you know and what, but those are just the connections, and no one's just going to hire you and bring you in if they haven't seen that you've put in the work to get to the spot where um, you know they can look at a resume tape and go, okay, well this is <laughs> this is a pretty good resume tape. What you just said about um, Jerry Rice interviewing Jerry, like what is that like? I was wondering from a filmmaker and you know director, what is that balance? Because I, I know this is something that you said, is that you like to use sports as a vehicle. And sometimes even your stories aren't specifically tied to sports, but it's a good vehicle to say and explain the message that you want to get out there. I thought that was really fascinating. But yeah, I was wondering what that is like for you, that whole process. Oh, that's a fantastic question, because I think, you know, even just to make it relevant to today, when we were talking about, you know, this COVID pandemic and we're talking about athletes getting back in the bubble or just treating athletes almost like video games. I mean, we look at them and they do supernatural things with their bodies and their minds. And even as athletes, you know, they grow up with uh, these supernatural skills. And from a young time, a young childhood to, to the time they become adults and professional athletes, they're treated differently. They're not, they're, 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 we're enamored with them. We were awed by them. And sometimes they don't get treated as humans. You know, a lot of times they don't get treated as humans. And a lot of the questions they get asked sometimes just stay almost too X and O. Sometimes that's all they want to stay. But I found when you find athletes who like appreciate the deeper questions um, and not like uh, trivial uh, relationship, who are you dating questions type like, like about the heart when stakes matter. I think, I think athletes 
are receptive to that. You know, they want to talk about not just what got them there, but what drives them and, and not just, you know, what's this, how's this trade going to affect so-and-so or what's it like starting the season 0-2 or like, you know, all the cliche jibber-jabber that you kind of have to talk about. But I've always cared about the person. I've always cared about their story. I've always cared about the adversities they've faced and how they've tried to or are in the process of trying to overcome them. Because other than that, I mean, it is then just a ball either being thrown through a hoop or a bat hitting a ball, and it's just a game. And that's fine, and that's great for escapism, right? Um, escapism is great. No one, I mean, we could use even more of it right now. Um, but in the end, I think the balance is, you know, looking at Jerry Rice and going, wow, that dude is the greatest receiver, one of the greatest athletes of all time. But I wonder what makes him tick and what his heart's about and how has his family helped him and how is where the sacrifices he had to make, not just, oh, you're just great, but kind of like what got you great? What makes you great? What keeps you sustaining great? What are the challenges of staying great? Staying with that, when you are speaking with NFL quarterback superstar, Cam Newton, or the Beard, NBA guard, James Harden, to allow them to become a storyteller rather than just the superstar athlete, is there a way to do that? Are you able to, like with human emotions, like when I'm on a stage, I like to disarm the audience by using humor so that the point I make later is more powerful because you've opened up and you trust me. How do you go about that with star athletes? Humor is a great one. I mean, I, I couldn't have put it better. I mean, yes, I try to be as real and authentic with those athletes as I can. Now, they're not trying to be your best friend and some players, especially the, the high-end athletes, like human interest subjects like yourself that we've worked with. Um, it's not that we, we're just less guarded, right? We, we, we're not on quadruple million dollar contracts and have to do this and worry about image and how we're, you know, have the swag on 24 seven or running a football camp or a basketball camp and have this persona. Like you and I can connect immediately and I can get, deep with you quick with the player it takes a little bit of feeling and oh you play fifa well, i suck at fifa but I'll, I'll take you on and maybe get my first win oh you think you know playstation i mean that's how it starts with james Harden. next thing i know i'm doing an instagram video with him betting him that if i beat his bodyguard he's going to get a playstation so that we can play against each other so you know that's because that is you know he's a kid in that sense i'm a kid in that sense i can relate to that in that sense not everything has to be just you, know, you stay professional but be human, you know? So the more I feel like I'm human with them and, you know, I brought Cam Newton some DVDs of our documentary that we did together. In fact, he's perfect product placement. He's right above my shoulder, which can't be the podcast. In the room, I know you could see it joining the camera. That, you know, I was like, hey, man, I just brought these for your family, just some extra copies. Thank you so much for your time for that interview. He's like, oh, man, that's great. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you. You know, and then he literally goes, open one up. And I'm like, open one up. And he opened one up. I open one up, handed it to him. Next thing I know, He's like signing it. I'm like, oh man, you can't, I can't take autographs. He goes, man, you're going to take this autograph. Signed and goes, wait, give that back to me. And I'm like, okay, now he's going to take it back. And then he wrote, P.S., thanks for making me look so cool. And then handed it back to me. And I'm like, that doesn't happen. If, you know, a couple hours ago, we weren't joking about stuff. We weren't doing, you know, nothing, everything wasn't serious about everything. We're trying to get stuff done, not waste his time, but be yourself. You know, be yourself with these athletes and show them that you can be yourself around them and you want them to be themselves 
around you. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. That's human nature, right? Try to stay human and not treat them like that video game or some uh, deity. Just treat them as an everyday person. You know, appreciate what they do. You know, doing research on them, by the way, and finding out their likes and dislikes. And if you have a commonality, if, if there's, if I find out an athlete like Star Wars, oh, it's over. We might not get anything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. So it's, it's. I think it's just the, the the more human touch and human you can be with these athletes, and humor is a huge one. I mean, who doesn't like somebody who can make them laugh, right? So, yes, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, and I just want to make sure I plug that ESPN. Martin, that piece, Roll Tide, War Eagle, it's my favorite to watch. Everyone in there, is, it's so entertaining. So, I mean, I won't go too far into it, but I, it is absolutely my favorite. So I encourage our audience to, to watch that. Well, you know what? I, I, I appreciate that. It was a great team effort with, from the director of photographies to Mike Balaka, my one of my best friends on the planet, to the editor, Matt McCormick, one of my other best friends, and you know Joe Tessator and... Bruce Feldman, you know, some, some giant in the industry, you know, they come with an idea. And the reason I think that story resonates with you is because, frankly, I could I didn't know much about the Alabama-Auburn rivalry. I would have never guessed that Auburn had won close as many games against Alabama as Alabama has beaten Auburn because of the national championships. But I think what resonates in that story, I think it's the human element of that film that captures you. You know what I mean? So you're not just a college football fan going – I just love college football. Oh my gosh, this is great. Or I'm an Alabama fan. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. That's why it has an appeal to a broad audience because of the human aspects of the story. I wanted to continue on that topic of speaking on athletes and the, the big time athletes that we hear of when it comes to, you know, swimmer Michael Phelps uh, speaking a lot about mental health. NFL wide receiver Brandon Marshall, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, both from the NBA, talking about mental health. It's clear. We've made progress, that, that, which is awesome, and I'm, I'm happy to see. But for you, someone who speaks to athletes from middle school to high school to minor leagues to the pros, when you're sitting down and you're talking to these athletes one-on-one -on -one and you're having really intimate conversations, when mental health gets brought up, what is the stigma that they still talk about? Do they still discuss? Um, I, I think that... I was educated once I got to do the story with you, you know, I mean, it feels like a, what is it, a decade ago at this point, unbelievable, um, that there are stigmas that, yes, we are talking more about it today, but I think a lot of athletes and just even our own kids or our uncles or our aunts or our grandparents or older generations, even younger generations, the stigma that exists and needs to be just wiped out is that mental health, A, isn't an epidemic. <laughs> like It's everywhere, and it can affect everyone, and that it's out there, and it is not some sign of weakness. We can sit there and see someone who has cancer, and we go, oh, my gosh, that guy worked out every day, and he ate so healthy, and he was just so fit. And how the heck did that guy get cancer? Well, mental health doesn't just attack the people who are – who just went through a terrible divorce and their dog died and they have all these reasons to be upset and then they're upset and they're feeling depressed and there's confusion and fear. And I think the stigma, if I talk about this, if I tell my teammates, if I tell my coach, if I tell my family that something isn't right and it's seriously not right, that it's 
some sign of weakness and whether they're going to lose their job or lose their respect or lose their swag or lose whatever, they're not realizing that they can lose a whole lot more. They can lose their life. <laughs> they can lose everything. And they can lose, uh, just forget about losing identity. They can literally lead down a path of destruction and death. And that's, it's, it's scary. And I, I and, and working with you, and talking with you and just being educated and seeing those athletes that you said come forward and finally start to speak out and say, Hey, it's okay. You know, I don't know how many gold medals Michael Phelps has, but I knew. I don't know how many Olympians have come out and say, hey, I struggle with mental health. Like, I need to work on my mental health. And it's okay to say that. And I'm going to make a commercial about it. And I'm not even show you my gold medals, but I'm going to show you my vulnerability. I think it is so vital. And it, it makes me not be afraid. And, and even as parents, like, not be afraid to talk to your kids and just directly ask them, hey, are you okay? Like it's okay to ask someone, "Are you okay?" And but even letting them know that if the answer is no, that's definitely okay. Yeah. And so that I guess that I hope that answers your question. But the stigma is that it's like some sign of weakness, but the weakness is that it's attacking you, and it's such as I can't imagine the feelings of helplessness that elite athletes, average athletes, everyday people who are struggling to, to get get it out, are just holding it in and what it's doing to them and where it's leading. So I think we have to do better as a society, period, of just putting out in the forefront. Now, I know this is it's kind of a broad question, but I was thinking about this. Why do you think in 2020, the athletes are just they're so transparent about what they go through on just a human level? But especially, you know, with mental health, like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan, they decided to write out their entire experience talking about mental health. Is it because we have gotten to a place where we're more accepting about mental health? Is it because with social media now, people can just be candid in how they feel in that moment? Uh, where do you think that comes from? I think athletes are tired of not being heard. They're not. They're tired of not being heard. Whether they want to kneel during the anthem, or they want to stand during the anthem, or if they want to lock arms during the anthem, or if they just not want to be told what to do. And when they see their fellow players, NFL players, suffering from CTE and the concussion thing coming out, I think it's just a, that's just a, a snowball effect, right? So that thing rolls and rolls and gets bigger. And like, oh, it's not just CTE, but now it's CTE is affecting their mental health. And they're like, hey, something's not right here. Yeah, I've been banging my head and that's obvious, but the things that it's causing, I don't feel right. I am depressed. I feel this. I feel that. And I think they're just tired of seeing their teammates die prematurely. They, they have families. They look at their kids and their wives and their spouses or their, their, their husbands. And these athletes are going, hey, I, I, I can't just sit here and waste away and be nothing. I think I think there's a lot of things that are happening in the world, obviously, that could actually facilitate uh, struggles with mental health and keep, you know, COVID is an isolating thing. You know what I mean? You have to be by yourself in your room. And you know what? But no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make videos and we're going to reach out and we're going to talk to the fans and we're going to talk to the my, my teammates and we're going to make 
dancing videos and we're going to do it and we're going to have social distance gatherings. I think people in general want that human connection as a species. That's how we were designed, in my opinion. I mean, we were designed to love and hug and help each other. Um, and I think athletes are just like, dude, I can't just sit here and be quiet about this anymore because um, it's just not healthy. <laughs> and it's, it, 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 can, it can lead to – the stakes are too high. It can literally lead to death. It's not just some cliche to say it's life or death. It is life or death. So I think they don't, they're just way more open now. And yes, with the, and you pair that with social media and Twitter and Instagram and blah, then you just have a, a, a confluence of just, well, a tsunami of just, we're not going to sit back and watch this thing takes over. The impact of LeBron James or Brandon Marshall or Michael Phelps, my son's a swimmer. He goes through, I mean, the, the, the attack on the mind. Like we thought our eighth grade in high school was tough. Like these guys are ambushed with texts and how many likes I get and how, you know, I mean, you get it. And it's like, holy moly, you know, how do they balance that? But when Michael Phelps comes out and says, hey, it's okay and you need to talk and there's people here and I've gone through it and you can make it and you can survive this and you can thrive out of this, that influence, you know, that's from their favorite role models. And that influence goes a long, long way. Awesome. No, it's, it's all great points. I, I actually, I wanted to come back to the filmmaking aspect of this. I saw you spoke to a school, uh, I think it was back in April. Um, you did a virtual kind of presentation with them. What do you uh, talk to college students about when you're discussing storytelling? Make sure you use good music. Because if you don't use good music, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Library music, yeah. But I better use some good music. Part of that, it's funny you ask that. Um, because, you know, when I was coming up, either at, you know, at UC Davis or getting an internship, there wasn't a lot of people that are my age now, that I'm of the elder statesmen, that really wanted to teach a lot or take time to inspire or literally teach the younger generation, right? And in a time of a pandemic, when you have a school like Ball State uh, and, and SportsLink, which is run by Chris Taylor and Alex Cartman, these guys are phenomenal, phenomenal teachers. And they teach these guys and gals how to storytell but also how to work together and how to overcome obstacles. And when you can't do this, how do you solve problems? It's a different way of teaching. It's not just like, oh, go shoot something that looks cool and cinematic. They're teaching them life lessons. And now there's a pandemic and everyone can't interact and they can't get to their subjects and they can't get to each other and they can't bounce off ideas. But can you just come in and just tell these guys, like, how do you, you know, sometimes you have to just remote edit, you just remotely edit because you were doing it before the pandemic. How do you get the most out of the editor? How do you get the, and it turned into a discussion of you, you're already creative people. You already have, you already have problem solving, uh, skills. Let's hone in on those and make this experience just better by leaning on each other and not saying, what, oh man, I can't get this done or I can't do this, but what can I, what do I get to do? What do I get to figure out today? You know, um, and that's what a lot of the conversation was about. Yeah, there were some specific things about each feature and what to do and how to ask certain questions and so on and so forth. Or even like interviewing someone over Zoom when the conversation is highly sensitive. You don't have that in the room interaction with the subject. It's out of respect because you just don't want to get them sick because of COVID, right? Um, how do you execute that? How do you 
pre-interview somebody. So it was a lot of conversations, A, yeah, about the craft, but also just trying to pump them up a little bit to say, hey, you're not alone. Your, your colleagues are here, not just in proximity, but just in idea bouncing. You can still work together as a team and uh, pick each other up and send each other links and try different devices and filming techniques uh, in your own house or whatever you have to do remotely. And don't get discouraged just because you're not there directing in the field, you know, direct remotely. Because, I mean, some filmmakers and producers have to do that regardless if there's a pandemic or not. So we got to figure that new skill set out. And, you know, it was, a, it was a great response. One of the subjects sent me, one of the uh, students sent me her finished piece and she incorporated a couple of things we talked about. And just that satisfaction that she gets, that she can reach out to someone like me to who's had experience to give them that feedback and be accessible to them. I mean, they're so appreciative, but they, 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 they just blow me away with how much, how far they've gotten at such a young age and that, that reinforcement for them. I, I can't imagine how much further I'd be in my career if I had that. Cause I didn't have that. <laughs> you know, we live in a, we live in a business where it's like, Oh my gosh, what a great film. What's next. You know, what's the, right. what's the next masterpiece you're working on? I'm like, well, did you see the last one? Because that one took a while, and we had to grab. You want to talk about that one for a little bit before we move on to the next one? And these are students, you know, who are whose brains are literally still developing. So I'm so glad you asked that because you know, because you go around the country and talk to these young minds that are like sponges. And one sentence out of your presentation, one sentence you tell these kids can just stick with them and literally change the path of what they do or decide they want to do. They might just look at you and go, man, I love how he speaks on stage. And he's so open with what he talks about. And this is amazing. And man, maybe I want to do public speaking. I'm really shy. I don't really want to talk. But man, Jordan inspires me. Like that's that's what we have to do as better as a society as a whole. I like what you said about one of the giants at ESPN, Scott Pell. He always says, live in the now. Yep. Because he, he would get on after, you know, I remember specifically, it was like the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. And everyone's like, is this a beginning of a dynasty because of all the young players that they had, incredible defense. And Scott Van Pelt was like, let's just let, let's just talk about now. Seriously, they won 10 minutes ago. Like, the parade isn't for a week. Like, can we enjoy this for what it is? And you know, it's funny you mentioned, Scotty, anytime when I would live in Bristol, we'd run each other in the hallways. It wasn't even, it was like, hey man, video games and the best thing in the calf and light, like just right in the moment. And that's what Scott was all about. And he just exuded that. And that's, that's amazing. Like, I, I love that about him. And yeah, I wish we all did that a little better. You know, for me, when I speak and I give a presentation, let's say it's a keynote speech. In that moment in time, you're so concerned about, all right, the, the timing and delivery and it's going to come out right and everything. I hope it goes well. And you get done and it goes well. And there's so much going on right afterwards of thanking people and saying hi to other people. And you're on your way out. And I never know when it happens, but I can tell there's a specific part of my day where I get to reflect on what just happened. Sometimes it's at my hotel room. Sometimes it's when I get home later that day. Maybe I'm up late that night and I just think about one question that I was asked. I think about one moment where I changed one sentence a little differently and it made a big difference. 
with the way the audience reacted, the people who come up and talk to you afterwards. There's a moment in time where you get to reflect on something that was so special that just happened that you were a part of. So making documentaries, making films, working on these incredible pieces, at what point do you sit down and say, wow, I did this. This was incredible to be a part of this. It's funny that we did a shorter piece. We wish we could have done a longer one on Vince Carter, right? And the uh, colleague of mine, best friend, who just left the ESPN for him, he's now the VP and EP of WWE, Ben Hauser. We did an interview with Vince, and I was we were going to shoot some more stuff with him, get access with him. And here's the last, you know, Vince's last dance, if you will. Um, turned out Vince didn't want to do a lot of stuff, and he, he shot his first game and just did a shorter retro piece on him. But it made me reflect back to when my resume tape had a sound, an interview moment with Vince Carter where I asked him, do you ever watch, and this is when I was with local TV, the Sacramento Kings game, and he was with the Raptors, and I said, I asked him, do you ever watch SportsCenter after a game and go, did I do that? And what? <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and everyone laughed, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah, because that dude is training, working, playing, traveling. But, oh, I just saw the top 10 at the bar or whatever, and I just saw the highlight. Oh, my God, did I do that reverse jam on that? Damn, that was good, right? And it, and it relates to this because – when I'm in edit, and you're like, dude, you've seen your piece 17,000 times. We are literally editing the piece, right? We've done all the interviews. I've worked on the script. I'm working on the script right now, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, hours of interviews. You put the script together. You think of all the shots. You sit down with an editor. You start collaborating on how you want to start the piece, where it's going to go. Talk about the, where you, you see the start and finish. You're going to lean on the editor to take your visuals and take your idea and make it even better than you think it's going to be. And as you're doing that, you're changing things and there's people chiming in and there's so much going on that you sit back and the even when I sit and I go, okay, I have a chance because I'm not traveling, I'm not doing anything, to watch this thing air tonight for the first time on in my own living room, because maybe I've flown home right before it's going to air. And I'll watch it with my family. And I'll sit there, and the it's it's almost like a big game every time. I feel anxious. I feel excited. I want to make sure the family's going to appreciate it, or the athlete I'm doing on it, and their families, and the team. And we cross every eye, we triple-checked spelling. <laughs> like, we've reported this thing out, and here it is. And we, I watch it, and I would love to say that after it airs right there, that I go, Wow, that was really good. Or we missed that. I wish I could have done that differently. I wish we had more time. Oh my gosh, that was perfect. I was like, I'll tell you, Jordan, until I watch that piece again, like a, maybe like a week later or a month later, is when I truly appreciate all the work that went in with everyone involved. And it's never me. It's like a, if I have to be the quarterback and the fault falls on me, or it's like you're the quarterback and the head coach. You're your position player and you're all this, but you also have other head coaches and other position players and elite, elite people on this team that have just brought this thing to life. And, and you know, you got to tell the story. Did we do it right? The, the, the aha moments, it's funny. They happen in increments. And I bet you you felt this on stage, like where you've said that line and instant gratification, you're just like, ooh. 
like in like a quick mental note, even some kasha, like, okay, now, now I like how I do that. And the pause or whatever, right? Or you, you've never paused after a certain spot, but this time you felt like that pause was, was, was good, it was intentional, and it worked. I'm going to try that again. Same thing with edits. Or you're, you're fumbling around and you're changing shots and you're doing this and you're doing this and you're high-fiving editors or you're in the field and you're filming something like, oh my gosh, that was so raw. That was real. That was it. Bam. So it's like all these pieces that get put together and if the stars all align, at the end you watch it and you know, like I've done so many now that I know when something's, because I feel like a responsibility to the family or whoever we're doing the story on, the athlete, whatever, the team, that I refuse to deliver anything but an A minus. And if it's an A minus, and I'm not saying I'm saying to my effort to put in, like I've given you an A of all my soul. And if it's A minus, it's probably because there wasn't a lot of depth to the story. And we tried some things and maybe that didn't even work, but it's not because of the effort that I didn't try to suck out of my team to put into that piece. So Again, it's not like saying, "Oh my gosh, all I do are A and A pluses." That's that's I don't want it to come across that way. What I'm saying is, the effort, and then when I look at something, I go, "Is that an A? Could have been an A plus. Was it a B plus? Ah, I don't know. Could have just talked them into letting us shoot one more day with him at the park, <laughs> you know?" So mm-hmm. it's the, the the aha moment comes. Whew. Sometimes when I first finally get to watch it, I'm not in the edit room. Because we watch the thing several times after it's done, check for errors, and then sound mix it, and then listen to the sound mix, and then you marry that sound mix with the final product, and the sound is now enhanced, and you're like, ooh, it's even better now. Um, but there's still little pressure things all over you, right? Because you don't get to just be sitting on a couch and just watch it and just let it be what it is. Um, so that was a long-winded way of saying maybe a week after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? Yeah. Honestly, sorry, I gotta add. Is when the family reaches out to you and you did to me and said, "Oh my gosh, man, we are just in tears here," or "We are you nailed it. Thank you." That is why we do it. I don't do it for awards. I don't do it for ratings. I don't do it for anything. But my bosses probably don't want to hear that. But I'm like, I do it. Number one for. The, the talents that God gave me, because God gave my talent, I let him lead the way. And then it's for that subject. They're the ones that said, yes, you are story. So they are number one. They are number one. And when that comes, that satisfaction is, I think that's when I go, whew, okay, we did right by them. When you are doing these pieces, what is that one moment, that moment where you ask a question and someone starts saying the answer and they go off scripts or they go off of something they don't usually say. Is it in that moment? I know we just talked about reflecting on certain moments and times. Is it within that moment that you just kind of have that grin of this is it? Yes. Yes. I mean, simply put, yes. And, and there's a balance of asking, you know, pushing the envelope about something because from and this has been such a great interview because you've asked, you've almost like put together a one-on-one, uh, you know, a, a interview lesson one-on-one from the get-go. How do you do that? You, well, you build authenticity. You, you, you share jokes. So there is that aha moment. And it's funny because if you're working with a crew that you're, you're experienced with, and I treat, you know, I work with 
crew members and editors and directors of photography that are more like my brothers and they are just elite in their game, right? I love working with elite people, but I like working with elite souls that are great at their jobs. If you have the, the courage as a director and a producer to take educated risks in the field with your cinematography or some of the things you want to do visually, but really with the person, that, that moment when that happens in a six hour interview, a four hour interview, a two hour interview, a 20 minute interview, I have I mean, large ears, but I have the ear now to go, oh my gosh, there it was. And I already, I, I'm already thinking in the room, man, what a great opening bite or what a great thing for the trailer because you don't know what the story is about. Those, those are just, and you know what it is? That is from the soul of the subject. So I didn't do anything special. I just asked the question. I asked a question that a lot of people are probably wondering and curious about, but feel like might be inappropriate or it might be this. Well, in our profession, we get straight to the core of the onion. Uh, Professor Vose, Retcom 134. I don't remember the name of the class, but he made me take it twice because I got a C. That was a mess and didn't study right for the thing. And he said, you should take my class again. And what I learned is that the onion, there's a lot of layers to that onion. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite color? How many dogs do you have? Blah, 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 blah. The middle is, why did you decide you weren't worthy of being on this planet? Why did you throw yourself? Why did you do this? What what that's those are hard, dark, deep questions. And we don't have a ton of time to get to those. But once we get to those, if you're gonna talk about that, then okay, then now I feel comfortable asking, hey man, what what don't you talk about? For you along your journey over the past, is it 19, 20 years now yeah, of, of doing this? Yep. How did that evolve? Uh frankly, it uh you were the light, Jordan. I, I had no idea what depression or being depressed meant. Just hearing like the verbiage that's used, hearing about why it's important to talk about it, hearing things like, I think the example I used earlier about someone who's not supposed to get cancer gets cancer. Well, mental illness doesn't, you know, mental health or the struggle to have good mental health there's there's no prejudice. There's no, you're too this or you're too rich or you're too poor, or you're too smart or you're too dumb or you're too this or you're not educated enough. Like it just attacks the mind. And you said in your piece, there was days I just didn't want to get out of bed and I didn't know why. I love golf. I don't want to golf. You know, I feel like people today will feel like, yeah, oh my gosh, I don't want to parent today. My wife and I, because it's just hard. I don't want to get out of bed today because it's just hard and we're just tired and we're exhausted, but there's a difference when you're like, I should be on my A game and what is going on? I don't even know what's going on or I'm having these thoughts and I, I can't understand them. You changed the landscape for all those students you talked to, my crew, my family, and how I perceive. And I mean, your listeners should know, you know, you came to Bristol, Connecticut on the, on the, third or fourth time we aired this piece um, on outside the lines and you, you spoke and then we went out to dinner that night and you know, that, that young man that came and, you know, apologetically interrupted our dinner to say, you're the guy that I saw in OCF, you're Jordan. 
And I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for just speaking up. I mean, holy moly, bro, it doesn't get more real. And that's and people say, if you change one life, it's worth it. Well, that's one life that's happened to be in Bristol that recognized you in the restaurant, came and said, hi, imagine all the lives that you've touched and changed with your message and your courage. And, and again, even the notion that you would tell me, hey, man, I'm doing these presentations, these speeches. This is a daily fight for me. <laughs> this is I didn't just survive. And it's all good now. Like it's it's a daily struggle. And I didn't have a concept of that. You know, I'm thinking, oh, he's in a good place and his family support. But the, the, even that notion of like daily struggle, oh my gosh, we can't stop because even the people who are feeling healthy, there's no timetable on when it's going to come for you. And if it hits the youth and not asking the right questions, you changed the game for me before any other athlete. Before we did it, we did an E60 on Brandon Marshall. We talked about mental health. We've done, you know, Michael Phelps has done his thing. We've talked to those athletes. Kevin Love has come out and write those things. Ten years ago, when you and I met, it was my introduction to it. And now I just notice it. And currently, and I'll tease your audience with this, I'm working on another story that I've teased you about, told you about, that I can't wait for them to see, probably in, uh, in the next month, in October. It's baseball-related. But uh, a mental health story that is going to, again, just raise that awareness, but just show people of the pro level, college level, high school level, athletes, non-athletes, that you have to communicate, you have to speak out if something is going on. And as parents, friends, family, whatever we are to other people, if we think we're okay, we need to ask people if they're okay. And sports... Injuries are very black and white. If someone breaks an ankle, someone breaks any type of bone, you get the x-ray, you hear how long it's going to take, the surgery, the rehab, and you're back to normal. And mental health isn't just black and white. There's so much gray that is there. And there's so many things that are complex. That's why I love your pieces. Because you, it comes in and it feels like, all right, we're just going to get another sports piece. But you go into what's what's you as a human? What are your feelings? What does the audience need to know about you? And I just commend you for um, you know all the work that you've done and, and all the work that you still are doing for mental health awareness. God bless you, man. You're just making me want to come out and do an update on your story. <laughs> it's so it's we're, we're both we're both everyone loves a good story. And everyone loves a good story that they can relate to. And you can't relate, I can't relate, to a guy who can catch a rebound, jump 12 feet in the air, grab it behind their head, dunk it, and then go look in their checking account and see that $3 million check just cash, you know, and they just signed a second shoe deal, right? We can't, I, we can't relate to that. Most of the world can't relate to that. But what we can relate to that person is the sacrifices they've made, the family you know, dysfunction that they may have had to overcome, the physical injuries, sure, but the mental injuries and the, and the, and the emotional scars of a divorce or a, a lost sibling or uh, a, some sort of um, traumatic experience. Like people can relate to that because that happens every day. Right. And now at a time more than ever, we can all relate to a global pandemic. We can relate to 
a country that feels divided. We can we can relate to racial injustice. We can relate to all these things and the things that we can't relate to. We need to be open minded because if you haven't felt the effects of COVID, if you haven't felt racial injustice or any sort of uh, persecution, if you haven't felt uh, the loss of somebody in, in, a, in a death or illness recently, okay, then you need to listen and you need to ask those how those people are doing and you need to celebrate the people that are helping others get to that point. And I think when we use athletes in that way, yeah, six Super Bowl rings, three NBA championships, four Stanley Cups, that's all great. That's cool. But look what they did for, you know, Ernie Johnson, best broadcaster, one of the best broadcasters. Look what he's done for his family and adopting, you know, kids from with his with his wife, kids from war torn countries that are disabled and are bedridden. And I mean, that's a freaking hero. Well said, Martin. Thank you again. Is there anything you would like to plug? I know we we just said let's stay in the now, but is there anything? I know you just mentioned something that's coming up for you. I would like to plug uh, prayer, prayer for. Um, the Disney company and ESPN company, we are undergoing massive layoffs and I'm, I'm, I'm just as expendable as the next guy and gal. I, I firmly believe that. And I'm, 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 uh, I know God will protect you know, me and my family and, and whatever happens, happens. But I, I would just like to plug prayer. And I'd like to plug you know, peace and harmony uh, amongst our, our, our fellow humans. Like let's, let's, let's love each other. You know, let's, Let's welcome sports back. Let's watch more sports. You know, set your DVRs to E60 whenever the heck we're on. Great. Let's pray for each other. Let's plug prayer and love and and harmony. And and honestly, and speaking about mental health, like let's get the stigma gone for good. And we need to come together to figure out the best ways to address them for the sake of our lives, our kids' lives, our families' lives, people who we love. Um, that's what I'd like to plug. Martin, it's been uh, a pleasure. It's been an honor to have you on the Minding Your Mind podcast. The honor is mine. The privilege is mine. And anytime I get a chance to help you, you're the you're the you're the pioneer and the crusader. Anytime I get to help you do what you're doing, Jordan, you are changing, shaping, and saving lives. Okay, a big thank you again to Martin for coming on to the Minding Your Mind podcast. I really appreciate his willingness to share his process as a director and producer, but more than anything, his willingness to share just how much he invests in the people he's interviewing and getting their message out for the world to see. So a big thank you to him again and to you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening. And in case no one told you today, please know you are loved. The world needs you and are so glad you're here. I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into the show. To learn more about us, visit mindingyourmind.org.
For this episode, I interviewed ESPN Emmy-winning director and producer Martin Kotobashian. Martin will share his experience of interviewing some of the biggest names in professional sports, uh, the different techniques he uses to bring light to impactful messages through the art of storytelling, and how his understanding of mental health evolved through listening to the people he interviewed. I've known Martin for 10 years now, because 10 years ago, I received a phone call from an ESPN producer who wanted to have a short phone call about possibly interviewing me and my family on my story for a show called E60. That short phone call turned into two hours. That interview ended up being a piece titled Unbreakable, and that piece was nominated for an Emmy thanks in large part to the man you'll be hearing from next. Here's my interview with director and producer Martin Kotobashian. 